You're listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, we praise you and thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you that we have uh, the written word in a language that we can understand. Um, God, I pray that as we seek to be faithful today to read it and explain it, God, that you would um, teach us, encourage us, convict us, instruct us where we need it, Father. Um, God, I pray that as we lay this foundation for why we believe what we believe and why we do the things that we do and why we view the world as we do. Um, God, that we would be united in that as we seek to um, share the gospel, as we seek to plant churches, as we seek to be about your kingdom work, Father. I pray that it would all flow from that foundation, that biblical worldview of understanding where we come from and why we were created and why you chose to do the things that you do. Um, Father, I pray that um, you would unite us today in our study um, as we look into your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we began our study in the book of Genesis last week with just some introductory type discussion. We talked about it being the book of origins. Um, it, it's where we get a lot of our understanding for why we do the things that we do. It has so many beginnings in it, and that's why we refer to it as the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of marriage. It's the beginning of work. It's the beginning of our seven-day week. It's the beginning of why we do much of what we do. We said that it's how our, our, our worldview gets shaped, where we understand or how we understand our beginning, where we come from, how we got here, why we're here. Ultimately, how we understand our beginning shapes how we view the world. It shapes the value that we place on human life. For us as believers, we see a value difference between animals and man because we see ourselves as distinct creations by God. That we didn't come from animals, that we're created differently. We'll see this, that, that God spoke into existence the animals. God takes dirt and molds man into his image. That there's a difference in our creation. There's a difference in our value. We believe that. We see that. It shapes our understanding of things like abortion. It shapes our understandings of things like euthanasia because of the value that's placed upon human beings and that understanding that value flows from God's word. Our worldview is shaped by how we understand our beginning. We said that Genesis answers four big questions that man wrestles with most. Where we come from, what's our purpose, what's right and wrong, and what happens to us when we die. That our understanding, how those questions are answered, and so we talked about why are we, why are we, why are we studying Genesis? Why not study a New Testament book that would be more relevant for today? And I told you, as we seek to advance the gospel, we're going to encounter people that have these type of questions. These questions about origin. Why are we here? What's my purpose? What's right and wrong? And our, our understanding of how to answer those questions comes from a good understanding of the book of Genesis. Secondly, Genesis provides the foundational structure for why we believe the things we believe and why we do the things that we do. It also gives us some basic understanding and concepts about what we believe about God, what we believe about Christ. We talked last week that without the book of Genesis, Jesus does not make sense. That the beginning anticipation of the Messiah starts in Genesis 3 when the world starts to fall apart. So when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, his arrival, his arrival has importance because of the context of what happens in Genesis. Some helpful reminders that I gave you last week as we study this book, that there's no conflict between Christianity and science. That, that scientists would love us to believe that there's a conflict there, that it doesn't match what science is showing. And what we're going to see is that there is no conflict between science and Christianity. Ultimately, we're going to see, too, that this book points us to Jesus over and over and over again. It's a book about Jesus. Now, at the time, they didn't fully realize that. But as Jesus shows up, we talked about how Jesus points to the Old Testament to teach his disciples, to teach his followers about himself. And he starts with the books of Moses. That Jesus is the better version of everything that we find in the book of Genesis. He's the better Adam. He's the better sacrifice, the better lamb. When Adam and Eve need to be covered for their sins, Jesus comes on the scene much later, and he's the better lamb. He provides the better clothing, the righteous clothing that we receive with the gospel. 
that he's the better version of Abraham. He's the better version of Joseph. He's the better version of these individuals that are held up as heroes of the faith in the book of Genesis. But Jesus is better. Jesus is better. This book ultimately points us to Jesus. Genesis is not the true beginning. So we started last week and looked into time past and we saw that the Trinity, the Trinity had a plan in place before God ever began to speak into existence what we see today. That before the world began, the Trinity was in existence. There was love between the Trinity. There was purpose between the Trinity. Jesus says that there was glory between the Trinity. And that before the world began, that there was a plan of redemption in place, that Jesus was our sacrifice, and that people's salvation was already secure. We see that before time began, Genesis is not the true beginning. And then we also see that Genesis points us to the ultimate end. What we long for, what we wait for, is a world that does not have sin in it, that does not have death in it, that does not have suffering in it. What we long for and wait for is not something that's never been. We long and wait for something that was. We wait for something to be restored. The book of Revelation 22 parallels so well what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. The restoration of things that were lost. When we read in Revelation 22, we see no more suffering. We see no more death. We see individuals eating and partaking of the tree of life. We see restoration happen, things that were lost in the book of Genesis. It points us to that ultimate end. But we get begin today in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, and we are simply going to look at verse 1 today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's there's really two ways to look at this 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 verse, um, and and it's a simple verse. It's one of the first verses that we read and understand as children, probably. Um, there's really two ways to kind of understand what Moses is communicating here in verse one. First of all, it's a summary of the whole creation account. As we're going to see creation unfold, ultimately God creates everything. He creates the cosmos. He creates what we see. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates all of it. And we're going to see that unfold. But we can also see this as an initial creation. That God creates time. We see here in verse 1, in the beginning, time is created. Space is created as he creates the heavens and the earth. And matter is created. God creates time, space, and matter. And what we learn here is that God pre-existed this universe. The universe had a beginning, and God personally orchestrated the beginning. And we're going to see that this has such ramifications for other false views that spring up. Views that say that matter existed before God, or existed in eternity. That everything flows from matter. But what we find here in Genesis 1 is that God supersedes everything, that God was in place before anything else existed. Before time began, God was, God is, and God will always be. God creates time, space, and matter. Some points for us to ponder as we begin studying here in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 are some of the most heavily criticized passages in all of Scripture. So we're going to spend a lot of time on Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because these chapters come under such scrutiny and such attack by the enemy. And I say the enemy, and those attacks come through science, but ultimately they are orchestrated by the enemy who would love to destroy our foundation and understanding of our purpose and meaning for existence. The enemy attacks Genesis 1, 2, and 3. To destroy our origin, to destroy our understanding of our origin, to destroy our understanding of our purpose. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 give the setting, meaning, and purpose to our life. And ultimately, Jesus says if we can't trust God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then we can't trust Jesus for our salvation. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 46. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, Jesus is referring back to Moses' writings. He's saying if you can't believe what's written in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you can't believe my words in the New Testament. He says, Moses was pointing to me. Moses was writing about me. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses was communicating about me. And if you can't believe Moses, then you can't believe me. And you can't be saved. So we we wrestle with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We come to an understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We trust God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That there's accuracy. That there's inerrancy here. That God communicates truth to us here. Because if he's not communicating truth, truth here then we can't trust him in the new testament number two our knowledge of the creation account comes from a combination of god's word and the physical world around us but it remains limited so we're going to delve a little bit into how we understand creation and how we understand the things around us our understanding of how everything got here comes from god's word and from what we learn from science But there's still a limited understanding that's made available to us about the origins of what we see. We talked last week, the book of Genesis is far more concerned about the who and the why of creation than it is about the how. It's far more focused on God and why he creates versus how he creates. And so we should expect that we're going to walk away with still questions lingering. Questions lingering about creation. Things that maybe can't fully be explained. Things that maybe we do have to cling to with loose fists because we're not totally sure about some of the things that we're left wondering about. Third, God is the Lord of time, space, and matter. We learn that here in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God creates time, space, and matter. As I was studying yesterday, I was reminded that these are all things that we desire to have control of. Isn't that true? We desire to control time. We'd love to be able to slow it down and speed it up. We would love to be able to control space, how much space we occupy, how much space we own. And we'd love to control the matter that we place in that space. These are basic temptations in life, how we spend our time and how we spend the resources that are made available to us. But what we learn here from the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, is that God is Lord over those things. And he limits those things in our life to remind us that he is Lord over everything. Number four, all of life falls into one of two categories we see here in chapter 1, either creator or creation. Either we're the creator or we're the creation. The difference being that the creator has no beginning. The creation has a beginning. The creator is self-existent. The creation is completely dependent. God creates the heavens and the earth. And number five, as an eternal God, he is seen as unchangeable and unescapable. If God's always been and always will be, We can assume that he is unchangeable and that he's also unescapable. In Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. God's always had purposes in place and God plans to fulfill those purposes in the future. He does not change, and we cannot escape him. He's the eternal God. All right, in our notes, two options there in your notes. How did the universe begin? We start here in Genesis 1, and we find the origins of our Christian belief about how the universe began. But ultimately, there's there's two options out there. As you interact and engage with people you come in contact with at work, with your family, friends, hobbies, those different contexts that we talk about all the time. When you come in contact, contact with people, There's two predominant ways that people believe that the universe began. Option number one is the naturalistic evolution by an impersonal force. Naturalistic evolution by an impersonal force. 
we're going to find that both of these options go back to the uncaused cause. What started everything? What was there in the beginning that started everything? We were talking, I was talking with our, our younger kids today. The two predominant thoughts are is that either matter was there, either matter was there, and Juju well, well defined it as, as matter being anything that takes up space and has weight. As small as that may be, the belief is, is that matter was there from the very beginning, from this naturalistic evolution perspective. The other perspective being that God is the uncaused cause, that God was there to initiate everything. Naturalistic evolution by an impersonal force. Evolution teaches that there is no design, no purpose. Everything is the result of chance and natural selection. Everything is the result of chance and natural selection. Richard Dawkins says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. What, what, what resonates from that statement there is ultimately the rejection that we see in Romans chapter 1. Dawkins says, when we look at science, when we look at creation, it looks like it's been designed for a purpose. But the ramifications of believing that, and Dawkins realizes this, and everyone else that holds to evolution recognizes this, to believe that, that creation is designed for a purpose necessitates a designer, necessitates a lawgiver, necessitates accountability. So Dawkins says, yes, it looks like there's purpose. Yes, it looks like there's design. But it's just the way that we perceive it. It's just complicated things that have been produced by an impersonal force of matter man willfully suppresses what is perceived as an ugly truth the existence of a holy all-powerful god to whom we are accountable evolutionists have been fighting this 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 uh this mindset and this is where evolution really even comes from it's an attempt to rid the world of the great lawgiver psalms 14 1 acknowledges the fact that only the fool would say in his heart that there is no god only a fool would look around and see what we perceive in creation and, and determine that this is all by chance. I mean, even when talking with our kids this morning, it was obvious that if we see something with design, it necessitates a designer. If we walk into a room and see a picture with intricate detail that's been drawn on the wall, it would be silly to think that markers were just thrown onto the wall randomly to produce it. It necessitates that somebody came in with a plan and a purpose to design what we see. Evolution resists that because of the further ramifications that would be developed from it. The major issue with evolutionary theory, and I don't, I don't want to, I mean, we could get caught up on the creation-evolution debate for, for months, and I, and I really have wrestled with how much time to devote to it. And I really believe that we need to stay as consistent to the text as we can. And so I want to teach Genesis versus teaching creation-evolution. Now, obviously, that plays a part into it, but I don't want to do a several-month-long seminar on the difference between creation and evolution. So I'm going to give you tidbits of information that I think are helpful, but I don't think it's necessary for us to do a full-blown conference-type feel about this. Those resources are available. Um, those resources are out there. They're available to us. For me, the major issue that I see with the evolutionary theory is the gaps in the fossil record. The claim that things have evolved into what we see today and the lack of, the lack of proof, the lack of evidence to show the, the in-between stages. So if we believe that certain animals have evolved into other certain animals, the, the lack of evidence there showing that process of evolution, where, where that, that, that mutation and that evolution is happening, that's the big hang-up for me, and that's, that's the one point that I would make in trying to discuss this topic with somebody. Option number two here about how the universe began is obviously special creation by a divine being. Special creation by a divine being. Now, we could, we could skip right over chapter 1, verse 1, and miss a ton of stuff if we're not careful. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we look at this passage in the original Hebrew, what we find here is the triune God creating out of nothing. The triune God creating out of nothing. The word here for God is Elohim, which is a plural word. It's a plural term. 
This plural word is used here for the one true God. Now remember, the purpose of Genesis is to write to the children of Israel as they're going into the promised land. Remember, God wants Moses to communicate to Israel where they come from and why God deserves their worship. Because they're going into a land where they worship all kinds of false gods. And the temptation is going to be to adopt their religion. They're coming out of Egypt where all kinds of gods were worshipped. God trumps every one of those gods with the plagues, right? So he chooses plagues to show the children of Israel that I'm the God of the Nile. That I'm the God of all of these elements that the Egyptians worship and they cannot control it. Even as they appeal to their gods, I am supreme over these created things. Now, as they get ready to move into the promised land, God wants to once again remind them of where they come from and why they worship the one true God. But here at the very beginning, there's a there's a complexity that's communicated about this God that they serve. A plural God with a singular verb. Elohim. And then the Hebrew word is B-A-R-A. And it's singular in its, in its form here. Which would be, in our understanding, incorrect to have a, a plural subject and a singular verb. But we're learning here that our God that we serve is... Is complex that we understand him to be a God of three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But we know that over and over and over again in the Old Testament, he's communicated as one God. A God who creates this word, uh, bara, the, the, the word for created. It's used throughout the Old Testament, but it's only ever used with God as the subject. Whenever man is creating something or making something or developing something, it's always other Hebrew words that are used. This word has significance because it's attributed to God in a way that that communicates that man cannot do this type of creating. That man cannot do this type of creating. It's a type of creating where, where something takes place that wasn't there before. A type of creating that happens where it's not taking things that are already there and molding it. It's creating something that wasn't there before. That's how we understand creation as believers. That God creates how uh, out of nothing is what we call it. Ex nihilo is the, is the Latin phrase there. Out of nothing. It's not that God was in existence with a bunch of particles and then he took those particles and began to create. It's that God predates all of matter. Which has real significance when we start to come up uh, against theories of of naturalism and these type of philosophies. Is that matter is is so important in those philosophies. And what we find from the Christian perspective is that God predates all of it. That he was in existence before anything. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Romans 4.17, the psalmist says, Before all of creation, you were there, everlasting. Romans 4.17, As it is written, I have made you father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the type of God that's being described here in Genesis 1.1. It's a God who calls into existence things that do not exist. Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God predates anything else that we understand about our reality. Father, Son, and Spirit in existence for eternity decide together to create. And they speak it into existence. This this term for created, the verb only used in connection with God as a subject, it stresses his sovereignty and his power. A couple other places where it shows up just so you can see. How special of a word this is. Genesis 1.21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. 
as God begins to create living things, conscious things. He begins to call into existence things that did not exist. In Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. Again, that same word. In Amos 4.13, not just limited to life. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He creates the wind. And then in Psalm 51.10, where we really begin to see the power of God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Why do I bring that up? Obviously, it it is uh, all-powerful for God to create to create out of nothing the, the cosmos as we have it, to create animals, to create man, to create the wind. But it's also so important for us to grasp the supernatural work that has to happen in an individual's heart for salvation to take place. For a clean heart to be created in an individual, it takes supernatural power. The only power in the universe capable of transforming idolatrous hearts to see God's glory in the gospel flows from the God that we serve. That's important for us. As we study creation, as we see creation, we identify that God is the only source of power that can do that, but that needs to translate to us as we go to work, as we interact with our family and friends, that we can't save anybody in our own efforts and our own best presentations of the gospel. We can know the differences between creation and evolution and know all kinds of defenses for it, And without the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working, salvation does not happen. God creates where there is nothing. He takes idolatrous hearts that have no good thing to offer him, no desire to serve him, and he creates in them the capacity for them to become his children. He's the God who creates everything that we see, but he's also the God that creates things that we can't see. New spiritual life within individuals. We learn here that God predates matter. All other origin systems advocate for eternal matter. All the other systems that are out there believe that it flows from matter that's eternal. And God's very intentional here to communicate from the very beginning that God predates matter. There's some other options here about um, that, that kind of come out of these two um, as far as how the universe began. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit next week, but there's a lot of there, there's a lot of people out there that would believe uh, that there's a big gap between Genesis chapter one verse one and verse two um, to account for what what a lot of scientists teach is that the world has been around for billions and billions of years, and so in trying to mesh scientific data with what God's word teaches, there are many that would would allow for billions of years to take place between verse one. And verse 2, it's called the gap theory, and we'll discuss it more uh, next week. There's also what's termed the day-age theory, that as we see creation unfold in, in the six days of creation, that these days represent long periods of time versus what uh, typically the conservative perspective being uh, a 24-hour type period. Um, there's also uh, what's termed the revelation theory. Um, this is, and Dan and I were discussing this yesterday as we were studying together, Revelation theory is that when, when Moses writes in the evening and the morning were the first day, that he's referencing this is what God told me in one day about creation. And so the, the 24-hour periods are Moses writing things down. Okay, evening and morning, I'm going to bed. We'll learn about day two tomorrow. Um, so some people interpret day one, day two, day three, that, that God over the course of a week communicated to Moses how the world began. All of these theories, the gap theory, the, uh, the day-age theory, the, um, the revelation theory, all of these theories flow from really what, what amounts to theistic evolution. 
Theistic evolution is kind of a combining of these two options. Basically, that God created the world, but he created it using evolutionary means. That he oversaw the whole process. So we can allow for the fact that God predates matter, but God creates matter and through the Big Bang begins to develop what we see through the evolutionary process. And at times would supersede and come into time and space and maybe do supernatural things that wouldn't happen on their own. Really, all of these theories are an attempt to reconcile the Bible with modern science based on perceived data outside of Scripture. So these these theories flow from what people are hearing from scientists what they're reading in the Bible and trying to reconcile the two. But there's some problems with this. First of all, the data that's coming from modern science is based on a faulty foundation already. So in in their best attempt, scientists still come to the data with a worldview that God does not exist. I don't know of any scientist that really comes to the data wanting to find God's existence. These that hold to evolution, they are searching for proof for evolution, not searching for truth about the data. So the data that's being produced comes from a faulty foundation. It comes from a foundation that doesn't believe in a worldwide flood, that completely jacks up the geology records. It doesn't, it doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for a supernatural God that creates a world that very possibly was mature when it was created, right? We were talking about this with the, with the kids as well. Adam and Eve weren't created as babies. And our kids rightly identified the fact that if they were created as babies, they would not have survived, right? Nobody there to take care of them. So God, on the very first day, creates Adam and Eve as adults. They've only been alive for seconds, for minutes. But they look like they've been alive for years. He doesn't create trees as seeds. He doesn't tell Adam, you're going to love the fruit when it gets here. But you're going to have to wait several, several harvest seasons for this to show up. He doesn't create little saplings. He creates the world in a mature state. That, too, is not allowed for by the data. We, we see stars that are, that are so many light years away. And, and it, it would seem that we would have to allow for a, an earth that's billions of years old. But when we account for a supernatural God that creates a world that is mature, it begins to answer some of these questions. The data comes from a faulty foundation already. Secondly, science becomes more authoritative than the Bible. Science becomes more authoritative than the Bible, and that becomes an issue. When when we allow science to drive our understanding of God's word versus God's word driving us to understand science. I told you up front, science... Our, our physical creation and God's word, they both work together to help us understand creation. But when science becomes more important than God's word, we begin to have an issue. And then lastly, as far as a problem goes, when does Genesis become historical? The, these theories flow from an idea that, that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is not a real historical account, that we can't take it at face value for what it says. That it's a type of poetic writing that's not meant to communicate real facts and real truth to us. That it's meant to communicate more of a conceptual type thing. But when does Abraham become a historical figure? Because Paul calls upon Abraham as the example of our faith. I'm banking on my salvation being accurate and true because I see how it worked in Abraham's life in the Old Testament. Paul appeals to him and says it's not based on works, it's based on faith. Abraham is in the book of Genesis. If I can't take Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as literal and accurate, when can I? Because I really need to be counting it as accurate when Genesis 15 rolls around and we start seeing covenant with Abraham. It's so important that we understand how Scripture is to be read and that we don't allow outside things to dictate how we read it, like scientific data. What we also find in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that they always treat Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as historical in psalms 136 we're not going to read this whole this whole chapter i just want to reference it for you you may want to jot it down and look at it again later because it's it's rather lengthy but in psalms 136 the psalmist here gives us reason after reason to give thanks to god starts in verse one give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the god of gods for his steadfast love endures forever 
Verse 5, to him by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. To, to the sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. The psalmist is referencing something in the past as a reason for why we should give thanks to God. And then he moves right into verse 10. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. We're not really debating if that's a historical event, right? We know that the children of Israel were rescued out of Egypt on the night that the firstborn was taken. This psalmist who is writing here is referencing historical events, and he starts with creation. He says, give thanks to God for our understanding of creation that comes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And he draws upon historical situations, and he continues through chapter 136 of drawing on historical events for reasons to give thanks to God. Matthew 19, for those of you that were at Jessica and Alex's wedding yesterday, Matthew 19, Jesus appeals to the purpose of marriage and the reason for marriage and the way that marriage is supposed to work, Matthew 19, by referencing Genesis 3, 1, 2, and 3, about they were created as male and female. They were created to be in union together. They're created to not be separated again once they're entwined in marriage. Jesus references these passages, not as allegory, not as symbolic, not as conceptual he references as a he says you remember adam and eve right you remember those two guys that, that guy and that girl you remember them they're they're the foundation for why we understand marriage the way that they are we see old testament and new testament writers referencing genesis 1 2 and 3 as historical all right so the implication for us here what we see in in genesis 1 1 the implication here is there is no room for atheism we see that God exists. There's no room for polytheism. The, the word structure, the, 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 the verb, the, the subject, they are structured in such a way that we have one God, a triune God, who created. Not many gods. Not many gods, but one God. No room for atheism. No room for polytheism. No room for pantheism. Pantheism believing that God is in creation. That God is creation. What we find here is that God predates creation. That God predates matter. The very thing that all these philosophies and, and isms want to lift up as the supreme thing, matter, God created it. It also leaves no room for naturalism, that matter is eternal. No room for any of these things. Number two, there's two options about how the universe began, and there's two purposes for why God created the universe. Two purposes. Why did God create the universe? What we find in, in, in God's word, specifically in Romans 1, is that God crafts a world that reveals his existence and nature so that we can know him and worship him. The so purpose number one. God creates to display his glory. God creates to display his glory. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Why? To display his glory. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. This is exactly what's happening in Romans chapter 1 when Paul says creation has made known who God is. God has revealed himself in the creative order. He has revealed his eternal power and his Godhead. He has revealed his power, who he is. God creates to display that glory. Here's where when you start to say things like that, though, you begin to wonder, did God have to create? Did God necessitate creating what we have so that he could be glorious? And that's where it's important to note what Jesus says in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world 
existed. That's so important. God in his self-existence does not need us, does not need creation, does not need us to, to receive glory. He had all the glory that he ever needed before he ever created. So when we say that God created to display his glory, in no way are we insinuating that he needed to create. Because when we begin to say that God needed anything, he ceases to be God. What we find, though, is that physical creation is an open theology book pointing every human to the glory of God. We walk outside today, we walk into a theology book. An open theology book that declares the glory of God. All of creation pointing mankind to God's glory. Physical creation is designed to point us in the direction of full reliance on God. The way that God has structured everything is meant to point us to him. In Psalm 22, verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. David says, you began to teach me my need for something, my need for someone else to sustain me from the very beginning. He says, you created me in such a way that I couldn't just eat on my own, that I needed my mom to feed me. And I began to learn trust from the very beginning. I began to learn trust and reliance from the very beginning. God is created with the purpose of pointing us to him and how we depend upon him and how we need him. God's worthiness for worship is rooted in his creative power first before his saving power. Not to minimize the fact that we should be praising God for our salvation because we should. We should. But let us not minimize that God deserves glory and honor whether he saved us or didn't. What we find in the, in the book of Psalms over and over and over again is that he deserves glory because of his creative power. In Psalm chapter 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Creation should drive us to worship. Yes, we worship God for our salvation. But from the very beginning, we worship because God creates and he demonstrates his power. Psalm 148, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him, all his angels, praise him, all his hosts, praise him, sun and moon, praise him, all you shining stars, praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree. And it shall, shall not pass away. Purpose number one is God creates to display his glory. Purpose number two, God creates to have his glory known. God creates to have his glory known. God gives generously from the greatness of his being. He creates us to enjoy him. The passage that I tried to read last week and I had the wrong verse. I now have the correct one. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A future prophecy, a future promise that there is a day coming when the world will, when mankind will have the knowledge of God's glory. So currently, the first purpose has been fulfilled to display his glory. His glory is on display. Creation has done its job in displaying God's glory. This second purpose of God's glory being known has not fully been fulfilled. But it will be. It will be when Jesus returns. God gives generously from his greatness. He creates us to enjoy him. So we said previously, God wasn't lonely. He wasn't lacking love. And he wasn't lacking glory. God did not create because he was lacking anything. He wasn't lacking anything. He didn't need anything. 
What we have here is a cosmic union between Father, Son, and Spirit, intense love for each other, and the decision is we should create so that more people can enjoy what's going on here. We don't need anything to enhance the fellowship that we have as Father, Son, and Spirit. But why not share this? Why not share this? Why not create with the purpose of of mankind enjoying what we have? And so God creates to display his glory so that his glory can be known by his creation. But he certainly doesn't need anything within creation. He creates us to enjoy him. We have been created with the purpose of recognizing the display of his glory and responding with appropriate worship. That's our purpose. We're to see God's glory and we're to worship in response to it. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Why? So that we will worship him. So that we will enjoy him. We have been commanded to reproduce ourselves into other worshipful beings by procreating and evangelizing. This, again, is why this is relevant to what we're trying to accomplish as a church. We're talking about planting other churches. We're talking about sending six to eight people from our church overseas. Why? To reproduce ourselves. To reproduce worshipers of God that recognize his glory. We are commanded to take his image to the ends of the earth. We do that by procreating. Adam and Eve have babies together. That's why That's why marriage is such a glorious thing within the church. Because there's... there's uh, while we don't, while we don't believe that someone is born into a covenant family in the New Testament, we would, we would differentiate it and say that there has to be a response of faith before they're part of our covenant family. The odds are stacked for them when they are born to Christian parents, right? When a child is raised in a church with godly parents, raised in a context where they're seeing the word communicated from spiritual leaders, the odds are for them that they will receive the gospel. We procreate for the purpose of Raising up worshipers of God. We evangelize for the purpose of creating worshipers of God. And it's even, it's even all the more glorious when we, when we combine the two and we adopt. right? When, when we bring individuals that we haven't procreated into our family with the purpose of raising them to be worshipers of God. We combine the evangelism and the procreation. That's what's, that's what's so glorious about adoption. That's our command, to to expand the image of God to the ends of the earth. We've been commanded to reproduce ourselves. What we find here in Genesis 1-1 is that everything we would be tempted to worship is seen as a creation by the one who deserves our worship. Right? Everything that we would be tempted to worship, when we really just grasp uh, Genesis 1-1 for what it is, everything that we would be tempted to worship is identified as a creation. Something that does not deserve our worship. Something that doesn't deserve our worship. Again, that was the purpose of writing Genesis. Psalms 96.5. Psalms 96. Verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Everything else we would seek to worship is worthless in light of God who's made everything. Jeremiah 10. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. Skip into verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Over and over, it starts in the creation account. We are are told that anything that would take our worship away from God, the one true God who made everything, makes us guilty of worshiping the creation versus the creator. Now, we can easily glaze over this and say, well, that's not me. Like, I'm here every Sunday. I worship the one true God. I don't have idols. But we are, we, are, we are very capable of falling prey to enjoying creation more than the creator. If we're not careful, we can, we can enjoy creation. We can enjoy the outdoors. We can enjoy hobbies. 
we can glory in those things. We can find our satisfaction in what God has given us versus finding our satisfaction in him. Rather than glorying in the one that gives to us, we can very easily, if we're not careful, begin to glory in the things that have been given to us. None of us as parents want our children to love the things that we give them more than they love us. We give them things to enhance what we have with them so that our relationship is is furthered. We, We enjoy these things together, right? That's what we give to our kids. We don't give with the intention of them loving these things more than us. And if we're not careful, and, and I want to challenge you, don't just glaze over this and say, well, that, this isn't me. Like, yes, I worship the one true God. There, there's, a, there's a call here for self-examination. Make sure that you're not glorying in the creation more than the creator. Don't miss that fact. Everything that we enjoy is created. Ultimately, we enjoy the creator over his creation what Romans 1 describes, worship of creation over the creator, valuing things that this world offers over things that are eternal. Revelation 4.11 is a picture of what this will look like for all of us one day when we are fully glorifying in the creator. Worthy are you, O Lord. And God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The implication for us, it is undeniable that both creationists and evolutionists worship in response to science. It's undeniable that both creationists and evolutionists worship in response to science. You can read some of the things that non-Christian scientists say about their studies, and it sounds very worshipful. Scientists are scientists that believe everything came from small particles are still very amazed when they examine the human eye and the complexity that's there. They're amazed by it. They're amazed that we could go from this with an explosion to what we have right here. They're definitely just as as may uh, their 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 expression of amazement sounds not all the time that much different than our amazement at these type of things. The difference lies in what's being worshiped. We worship the creator who created these things that amazes us. The scientist worships the matter where they believe these things came from. We're created to worship we're created to worship in the in the very beginning God creates us. He declares his glory through creation. It's now up to us to worship properly. Either we worship the creation or we worship the creator. Two options, natural evolution, special creation. Two purposes that God has in creating to display his glory, to have his glory known. Purpose number 2 is what we work on now. We work as a church to know his glory properly here. When we know his glory, it radically shapes our life. It causes us to fight sin differently when we're seeking to enjoy him. We work to make his glory known to others. But as the application, and we'll close with this, from an apologetic standpoint, how do I defend Genesis? When I come in contact with individuals who doubt Genesis, doubt the validity of Genesis, hold to an evolutionary type mindset. How do I defend it? How do I fight against it? Um, raise your hand just off, off the top of your head from the discussion earlier. How many of you have really come in contact with somebody and trying to share the gospel where this really was a big issue, a big hang-up for that person? Anybody that has encountered that, okay? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. When it comes to apologetics and defending the faith, I think there's a point where we begin with. And I think as we teach and proclaim this, it's sufficient in what we need to teach and proclaim. Because I'm going to be honest with you. I love listening to guys like Ken Ham. How many of you listened to the Ken Ham, um, Bill Nye the Science Guy debate back, I think it was like in February? I'll be honest, it was really good, but most of the time I was like, what are you guys talking about? Right? Like, 
It's been a long time since I've been in a science class. And you can throw terms around like carbon dating and, and other things, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I really don't. And this is me sharing some ignorance as your pastor. I, I'm not real smart in the area of science because I don't have time to keep my attention on it. I just don't. Right? Like, I got all A's in high school. Like, I, I aced all my science classes. At the time, I probably could have told you a lot about science. The gap between my last high school science class or my last college science class to now continues to grow, right? And I don't typically have time in my day to read science books or read science blogs or visit Ken Ham's website very often. It's good stuff, and we need Christian scientists proclaiming those things, learning those things, debating those things. And at times, we may need to direct people to those resources. I'm just going to confess to you that I don't really, I have no plans, honestly, to become an expert in this area. I just don't. And I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary. Because we we talked about the fact that the church grew in the book of Acts. The church grew in the book of Acts not because they were holding creation evolution seminars. Right? They're good. They're profitable. But they aren't necessary, in my opinion. Because the church grew because they taught Jesus. And we don't have to separate it as though it's two different things. It's not, well, should I debate creation and evolution or should I tell them about Jesus? You tell them about Jesus and you debate creation and evolution by teaching them about Jesus. If you teach a full discourse of who Jesus is. Look at these couple of verses with me real quick. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus sustains all things. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Jesus again tied to creation. Ephesians 3. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul says creation is all about Jesus and it's all for Jesus. In Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We see the preeminence of Christ here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. All of these verses link Jesus to creation. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he was inherited is more excellent than theirs. Everything that is belongs to Jesus. Everything that is relies on Jesus. And everything that is done by Jesus is done for Jesus. I plan, I told you, I'm not planning. I don't have a reading plan for science right now. I have a plan for the rest of my life to become more and more and more of an expert on who Jesus was. I plan to develop my relationship with Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper for the rest of my life. So if my intent in spreading the gospel is always focused on teaching Jesus, then I should always know what I'm talking about. Because I'm constantly investing myself into knowing Jesus. And to living with Jesus, to experiencing Jesus. The thing that to me was missing so much from Ken Ham's debate with Bill Nye is Jesus. And it's the very first discipleship lesson that I start with anybody that I meet with. It's that somebody has to determine what they believe about Jesus. When you encounter anybody, anybody that doesn't believe, your discussion needs to focus on Jesus. Who do you think Jesus was? Only, only a real fool believes that Jesus didn't exist, right? I mean, I mean, there's so much historical evidence for a man named Jesus. So, so that pretty much goes without question. There was a man that walked this earth 2,000 years ago named Jesus. Most skeptics agree that he died on a cross. Most skeptics believe that, he, that there was a theory going around that he was raised from the dead. That's things that people that don't believe that Jesus is God believe. That a man named Jesus walked and talked and died on a cross and people thought he came back from the dead. So my question is always to people when I'm trying to share the gospel, what do you think about Jesus? Well, let's talk about carbon date. No, let's don't. Because that conversation is not going to go very far. Let's talk about Jesus. Because if we can determine some things about Jesus, it's going to help us understand how this whole world got, got, got here. Because this Jesus that I believe in was there. He was there creating. So if you think he's just a teacher, if you think he's just a a prophet, if you think he's just a good person, that's where we're going to spend our time talking. Because I need you to understand who Jesus is. He's the one that created everything. I don't know what happened to dinosaurs. We can talk about that, but I don't know. But I I I knew who Jesus is, and I've devoted my life to him. I've surrendered everything that I have to him, and that's who I'm following. And he ties in great with Genesis, and he ties in great with the creation stuff. And he negates all this stuff that you believe about evolution. But it has to start with Jesus. That's how the church grew in the book of Acts. So I don't want you to stress as we go through Genesis and think, well, I've got to have answers to all these questions. I may come up with somebody, come across somebody that has questions. It really needs to come back to what they believe about Jesus. Was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he the son of God? Because if he's the son of God, then we can take him for everything else that he says about himself. That he created everything. That he was there from the beginning. That he was there before the beginning. That he is God. And so as we continue to work through Genesis 1, we continue to talk about creation. I want us to keep bringing it back to Jesus. That's what we're responsible for teaching. The other stuff has has profit. It's beneficial. And there may be times where you need to have some knowledge and some background in that area. But if you're like me, your time is limited. And I would much rather you be studying and learning and developing a relationship with Jesus that translates into those conversations versus really trying to figure out the nuances of things that we may not know until Jesus returns anyways. Teach Jesus. It's God's glory that needs to be known, and it's best known through Christ, the preeminent one. Let's pray. Father, we we praise you and thank you for what can be known about you through Genesis 1-1, a very small passage, but one that contains such truth and relevance for our life. God, I'm thankful for you as the creator and the sustainer of this world. 
I praise you and thank you for Christ, who has become my everything. God, my prayer is that I continue to see your glory through creation. My prayer is that our church continues to see your glory through your creation. That we would worship properly the creator and not the creation. Father, protect us and guard us from the temptations of idolatry. God, help us to to realize that idolatry extends far more than just having statues of false gods in our houses. That if we're guilty of glorying in the creation over the creator, then we have built idols in our life. God, I pray that creation would point us to you and not detract us from you. God, we want to be faithful to know your glory that has been displayed and communicated through all creation. And God, we want others to know this glory. We want others to worship you rightly. So Father, I pray that as we're raising kids in our church, that we would raise them with the focus of pointing them to you. That we would see our responsibility to raise up worshipers of you. God, I pray that we would see that responsibility in those that we interact with. God, that we would see we have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would protect us from being detracted from that. That in the midst of conversations that we would not allow the enemy to take us down roads and, and, and rabbit trails that are not relevant to the discussion of Jesus. God, help us to realize that that Jesus is everything that we need in our communication with others. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to teach Jesus, that we'd be faithful to grow this church by teaching Jesus and the glories of the gospel that we would point people to the Creator and what the Creator has accomplished for us. God, I pray that you would continue to grow our church with the purpose of planting other churches so that we can spread your image. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.